turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. This morning's sermon is the third sermon in a mini-series we've been doing over the last three Sundays, the third and final sermon on Christian community. And the title of my message this morning is People of Praise. Now, People of Praise is actually a lay educational movement in the Catholic Church. Such groups allow married couples, families, and singles, single Catholics, to experience their faith in a variety of more personal ways. These are the words of journalist Mary Helen Fioroto in an op-ed piece she wrote in 2020 in the Wall Street Journal. She goes on to say that most Americans had never heard of the group People of Praise before President Trump nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. But thanks to media and certain kinds of politicians, many have been led to believe that People of Praise is actually a sinister group rather than a, uh, a wonderful Christian fellowship. It isn't. Now, I have two problems with this idea of a people of praise group. The first is that what a, what a shame that our society is ignorant of people who try to, quote, experience their faith in more personal ways. And not just ignorant, society actively mocks and uh, belittles such things. But my second problem is a little more pastoral or theological. And the problem is this, when a lay, when it, when a lay ecclesial movement, or a parachurch organization basically, is, is praised for doing the things that the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to do, that is to say, experience our faith in personal ways, is the function of the church. People of Praise calls itself a covenant community, in fact. This is exactly what we call church membership, being an in-covenant member of a covenant community. So People of Praise, in our text this morning, is actually a term that doesn't describe a select group of Christians who want to experience their faith in a more personal way. It is the term for all Christians everywhere in all times a people of praise. See, people of praise are sinners, skeptics, and everyone seeking God's mercy. So if you are a rebel saved by grace, you are part of the people of praise. No extra membership needed. So this morning in our third of three sermons in 1 Peter, where we've been focusing on the importance of Christian community, we see that while it can be true, it's a true affirmation from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of saints. But we don't necessarily practice communion or community as we should. And I mentioned in the first sermon in this series that COVID lockdown certainly didn't help. In fact, as I was preparing for this sermon, I discovered in the research that has been done since the lockdowns of 2020 that that time of isolation particularly hit young people under age 30 harder than any other population, and in particular, teenagers 
suffered from the loss of community. But it isn't just lockdowns that are harming us as a society. Smartphones, AI, social media, and generally speaking, the pace of our lives all are community killers. Or, from the title of my message this morning, instead of making us a people of praise, we are a people depressed. So how can we do better? What does God's Word tell us about being a people of praise to God? It actually, uh, this passage in 1 Peter, actually concentrates, um, to my reading, more Old Testament texts in one small section than every other place of the New Testament. It's like a patchwork quilt. Peter takes one passage from the Old Testament after another and stitches them together to describe in extremely vivid ways what it means for us to be a people of praise. And there are three images that that pop forward as we look at this morning's passage. A people of praise is, is a people that is described as resurrected stones, three R's, resurrected stones, royal priests, and redeemed rebels. So let's take a look at each of these three images and see what we can learn about not being a depressed people, but a people of praise in, a, in, in our day and in our age. I'll begin by reading the scripture passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and then let's pray. God's word, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the praise, people of praise, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, we are indeed uh, a depressed people, and if not clinically depressed, certainly often discouraged, inward, morose, narrow, and self-focused. But you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, have redeemed us, have rescued us, have transformed us into that that from that people to a people of praise. And this isn't an add-on for the church. It's not the advanced course. It's essential and fundamental to our very identity as sinners saved by grace. So would you help us this morning as we look at these three images of a resurrected stone, royal priesthood, and redeemed rebels? Would you help us to see pictures of 
who we are and who you are making us to be. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first image, I think, in our text that captures what a people of praise is supposed to be is the idea of a resurrection stone. Now, the text uses the phrase living stone in verse 4. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Now, the idea of a stone is this. If you can picture a, a giant yard or, or a field of stones, uh, I grew up in, in Indiana at one point, and there are limestone quarries, so these are giant chunks of rock, and if you were to look down into a limestone quarry, it would go, it's like, a, a, it's like a five, six stories down into the earth. It's a massive hole. There are roads that lead up it, and giant earth-moving equipment as rocks are literally extracted from the earth. And as these rocks are, are taken out and the building projects considered in terms of what these giant stones are going to be used for, you can, you can see the fellow in hard hat, maybe a clipboard, and maybe looking at it and going around and testing it and making sure that this is a, a good stone to use. And the determination is made, and so this, the stone masons and the stone cutters and the tools and the, the saws go, go to work and the hammering and the chipping and the chiseling, and that stone is it's fitted for its use and then brought to the job site. And when the stone arrives at the job site, the people who are in charge of actually constructing the building take a look at this stone and they walk around it and they look at it and they, they kind of scan it and gaze it and they say, this stone is no good. The builders have rejected the stone that has been prepared and while in a, in a human scenario, this would set off a flurry of lawsuits in the scriptures, the one who has prepared the stone from eternity past is Almighty God. How dare the builders reject such an honorable, noble, esteemed, and precious stone? What were they thinking? Were they in their right minds? Well, we know what it's like to, to have our ideas about how our lives should go, about who we should be and where we should go to school and who our parents should be and what our future should look like, a future spouse, a future job, an income, a car perhaps. And we know what it's like when all of those hopes and dreams seem to be falling away one at a time and the things that I want and I need and I longed for are now out of my reach seemingly never to be had. And so we reject things that don't match our pattern, our, our concept, our own desires. But then we taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we see that my way of life isn't the best way for life. That the thriving, flourishing 
uh, beautiful life, la bella vita, the life that is well lived, is a life that is lived to the glory of God for his purposes and not my own. And instead of being a stone that is of no use in the master's building, we are made into resurrection stones, living stones. But there's more you need to see in this first point because we come to him, the living stone, who is rejected by men but accepted by God. You see, the first thing you need to know about being a people of praise is it involves a transfer of loyalty and of priority. Instead of craving the acceptance of your friends, of men, of human beings, of people, of society in general, and all the marks and measures of what it means to be a successful and a beautiful person according to the world, when you come to the living stone, you are rege- as, as Jesus himself, the living stone, is rejected by men, you too have to reject the world's standards for your life. And God's acceptance becomes enough. Notice our text says in verse 4, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That phrase is worth underlining or noting, in the sight of God. It literally means before God, but it refers to someone who in the judgment of another is accepted. There's someone whose judgment counts, and it isn't men, it isn't the world, it isn't society. It's the judgment of God that counts. So whose audience are you performing for? Who who do you live for? If you're a dead, useless stone, you're rejected by God because you're living for men and for sin. But if you're a living stone, if you come to the one who was rejected by men, on the cross, Jesus hung and he was insulted. He was tried on trumped-up charges and found guilty of something he didn't commit. And when given an opportunity to, to be released as an innocent one by Pilate, the people demanded a guilty rebel, Barabbas. He was rejected by men. He was spat upon. He was derided. He was teased. He was flogged. He was whipped. They placed a crown of thorns upon his head and he hung on a cross And though he ultimately was accepted by God, he did cry out, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? This is the one we come to. And when we come to Christ, we come not to the one who is hanging on a cross. We come to a living stone. We come to one who is the living Savior. You see, our hope is that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the living stone and he is resurrected from the dead and so you too are resurrected stones. The stone image repeats in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Peter here is quoting Isaiah 28. And a cornerstone is the specific kind of stone we have in mind. It's the first stone that is placed in a building on which all the other stones align themselves. 
In the context of Isaiah, the people of Judah were not living for God. They were not living righteously and justly. They were behaving badly. They were builders who should have known what righteousness looked like, but they didn't. And in response, God says, I'm going to start building a new temple, one which I myself will lay the cornerstone, and you're wise to receive it and to measure your life by it. Whoever believes in this living stone, verse 6, will not be put to shame. Just as the stone is precious and honorable in the sight of God, verse 7, so you who believe and receive this stone as a measure for your life, as a foundation for your life, you too are precious in the sight of God. You too will be honored by God. Just as the stone was rejected by men but received by God, so when you come to Christ, you will be rejected by men but you will be received by God through Jesus Christ. The dignity that belongs to Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God is the dignity and glory that awaits you who believe in Christ, for his destiny is yours. You are a people of praise because you are resurrected stones and you have to look forward to life with God in Christ forever. So the second image is not just the resurrected stone for being a people of praise, but royal priests. And this flows out of the first. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and attempt a Marvel illustration, Marvel comic illustration. Please be patient with me. I believe in the movie Thor, Love and Thunder, there is an eternity temple. And in eternity's temple, there are a number of statues, each of which represent a god, and they come to life. And so the image that comes to my mind here is of a temple where the stones come to life and serve in the household of God the thing for which they were designed to do. You yourselves are the stones in God's temple, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you emerge from the walls of this living temple to do spiritual work unto God, the very purpose for which you were made and redeemed. Resurrected stones become royal priests. That's the image here. And it's a process. So the phrase is, you are being built up. That phrase, being built up, suggests that the way in which you achieve your purpose as a, as a resurrected stone and a royal priest is something that takes place over time. You're not there yet. You're learning. I'm learning. This week was difficult for me in some ways. I I had to learn some lessons that I thought I'd already learned again. See, I'm learning as as a resurrected stone to be a royal priest. I'm learning to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, God has accepted me 
God has accepted Christ, first of all. I've come to the resurrected stone, and he's accepted me in Christ. And I'm learning now, being accepted, an accepted son of God, I'm learning what is acceptable to God. I have to unlearn some things, too. See, there's a way of doing things that has worked for me up until now. And, and God is reminding me, even as, as recently as this week, even this morning, He's reminding me that I am a royal, I'm part of a royal priesthood. I'm a king's man. And I'm learning to do the king's work in the king's way. What is this spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? Let's do a little Bible study here. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Four biblical texts that show us what spiritual sacrifice means. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Actually, uh, one of our members, Kevin Tamu and I were talking about this verse recently. I appeal to you, therefore, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Brothers, by the mercies of God, here it is, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't live for what's acceptable to men, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul here is echoing what Peter is saying, which is, in this new condition, in my new identity, there is a way of life and a way of thinking and a way of acting, a way of being that is conformable to, to my new identity as a royal priest. And it's a spiritual sacrifice. It's a body, mind, emotion offering to God. I'm reminded that Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, actually offered an actual sacrifice which was disobeying Samuel's instructions. And in the Old Testament, you know what it says there? Saul protests and he said, I did it exactly right. I, I offered that animal sacrifice just like I was supposed to according to the law. And Samuel said, Saul, come on, Saul. You know that to obey is better than sacrifice. So a spiritual sacrifice is the kind of life, the kind of activity, the kind of behavior, thinking, acting, feeling that is pleasing to God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're doing a little Bible study together this morning looking at spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews is just a few pages back from 1 Peter. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So a spiritual sacrifice are words that come out of your mouth 
that declare God to be good. Praise the Lord, for example. God is good, for example. Thank you, Jesus. That's the sacrifice of praise. Thank you, Jesus. This is the fruit of the lips. What an image. It's as if the mouth is a garden or a, or a farm or a tree. And out of the tree, the expectation is come fruit. Tangible, specific language, words. Using your mouth to praise God, which pleases Him. I remember early on, um, someone who's part of our church struggled with prayer. And as I was encouraging this person and, and praying with this person. This person's learned to pray. And that's the fruit of their lips. See, we don't naturally know how to pray and to praise God. It takes time and practice. You, you learn to be a kingdom of priests. You, you learn to be a royal priest. Some of us are rookies in the priesthood. Now, by priest, I don't mean like a Roman Catholic priest. I mean, the function of someone who brings to something to God that is pleasing to him. We don't need a priest in that Roman Catholic sense. We have one. His name is Christ. He's brought the perfect gift to God, and God is forever pleased. But we are called to be a, a royal priesthood in that we're living out of that once and for all sacrifice, never to be repeated again. And what we do on Sunday is not a mass in that sense that we're repeating the sacrifice. We're renewing our commitment to serving God as His sacrificial people, as His royal priests. But there's more than just the fruit of the lips. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 13. The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name, Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul also expresses how grateful he was to the Philippian church for his welfare in Philippians 4:18. I am well supplied, Paul says, having received the gifts that you sent as a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, we've just finished as a church something called My Faith Promise. And in this, many, many of our families, I'm told almost, almost over 80% of the families of this church, members and regular attenders, wrote on a little piece of paper, and I didn't see them, a number saying this is how much money we want to support the church this year. And that's pleasing to God. And some of you have the practice of encouraging the children in your household to make faith promises as well. $5, $10, $100. See, what matters to God isn't the amount of money, but it's the fact that it's a sacrifice to you. That's what he's pleased with. Something that's precious. That mirrors in a very, very dim way, the precious blood of Christ which redeemed you from your, from your, uh, from your, your own sin. And speaking of which, I feel blessed as a pastor to serve this church. 
my job, my income comes from the, from the giving, the sacrificial giving of each and every one of you. And my family is blessed because of your sacrifices. I am well supplied. And for that, I am thankful for your sacrifices. And finally, a spiritual sacrifice, I believe, is an effort to live a godly life. We're not going to look this verse up, but make a note of it, please. Maybe you know it. It might be one of your favorite verses, Micah 6, 6 to 8. Listen to what Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. Hasn't he shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a spiritual sacrifice. That's the work of a royal priesthood. That's the work not of a, an official pastor, minister, priest, what have you. That's the work of every man, woman, and child in the body of Christ that we might be a people of praise. We bring spiritual sacrifices as a royal priesthood. That's the second image. Resurrected stones, royal priests. And the third one, the third R, is redeemed rebels. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> and verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here it is, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the glories, the goodness, the praise, people of praise, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here's the verse in verse 10. Redeemed rebels, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter quotes Isaiah 28 in verse 6, Psalm 118 in verse 7, Isaiah 8 in verse 8, Exodus 19 in verse 9. I mean, this is, this is amazing, and I'm just mentioning... A, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49 makes their way in here. But in verse 10, he summarizes the entire book of Hosea in one sentence. If you haven't read Hosea, read Hosea. And at least read Hosea chapter 1 and 2. In this book, God uses an unusual naming procedure to convey both his anger against sin and his love for sinners. Have you heard the story? Here's Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits prostitution, whoredom, by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now she, Gomer goes on to bear three children, and the daughter is called No Mercy. That's the name. 
The name that Hosea is instructed to give his daughter is no mercy. And the name he's instructed to give his second son is lo ami, not my people. So devoted, so dedicated was the prophet Hosea to the work of the ministry and to the calling of God that his wife was appointed by God and the names of his children were appointed by God in the service of his ministry. Now I know my children have to suffer for being pastor's kids, but nothing like Hosea. And yet in naming his son, not my people, and in naming his daughter, no mercy, Hosea then says this in verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He's, he's reviewing and repeating the Abrahamic promise. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said, Children are the living God. And then Hosea 2.1, Say to your brothers, You are my people. And say to your sisters, you have received mercy. This is what Peter is, is echoing. He's channeling Hosea's prophecy when he says in verse 10 of our text, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are rebels who have been redeemed. That's the image here. And since you are a redeemed rebel, you have become a people of praise. And that's my third point. So three R's. You are resurrected stones. You are royal priesthood. And you are redeemed rebels. This is true not just of a select group of people, of an elite club, as virtue and noble as the people of praise in Steubenville, Ohio is. I, I, I think it's a, actually a really great ministry. No matter what your background is, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much you've sinned, you have been redeemed through Jesus Christ. Billy Graham once told a story that illustrates this point very well. A man lost his job, his entire fortune, his wife, and his home. But he tenaciously held to his faith in Christ, the only thing that he had left. Like Job in the Old Testament, he would not abandon God no matter what. And yet, like Job, he couldn't help but wonder why. One day, the man stopped to watch some men doing stonework on a huge church, and one of the masons was chiseling a triangular piece of stone. What are you going to do with that? asked the curious onlooker. The workman said, see that little opening way up there near the spire? Well, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. Tears filled the man's eyes as he walked away, for it seemed that God had spoken through the workman to explain the ordeal that he was going through. I'm shaping you down here so that you may fit up there. What hope. What a living hope we have. Now, if you're young, it's normal that you want to fit in down here. It's actually part of how you're designed to grow and develop. You learn to differentiate yourself from your parents. You're learning to think of your life independently of your parents. And you get a driver's license, and you can go where you want, and no one necessarily can see what you're doing, at least not your parents anymore. And that's a good thing. 
In fact, your mom and your dad have been praying for this for a long time. Actually, they're, they're waiting for it. Come on, Jesus, help me. We actually want you to be on your own. But we want you to be on your own and independent of our family in such a way that you're being prepared down here to fit in up there. We want you to know that this life is very short and brief. And if you give yourself to conforming to the standards of this world in high school and in college or grad school, the only thing you're going to meet when you cross that threshold into eternity is the eternal, unremitting judgment and wrath of God. And like Esau of old, you will have sold your birthright for a bowl of porridge. No, we're to fit into another people. Not people who will be ashamed on the day of judgment, but people who will praise and rejoice and sing when the judgment of God is revealed. You see, we may sound out of tune here in the earthly choir amongst our friends. We don't sing their songs. We don't dance their dances. But we're preparing our voices and our feet and our bodies for a choir that will be revealed. So don't allow Satan to discourage you to the point that you fail to see the value of not having certain things now and waiting for them later. Don't let the enemy of your souls show you or tempt you to think that the things that the father, the stonemason, is chipping and chiseling away in your life are actually precious parts of your life. Because the master craftsman is preparing you to be a living stone and a royal priest. You know, he hasn't promised that your life is going to be always smooth and free of problems. But he has promised that when it comes time for the fitting, you're going to be perfect. You're becoming a royal priesthood as you offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And he will never abandon you. He so identified himself with you that he gave you his name. Christian. You're Christ's. So as I conclude this morning, here's some specific applications that I want you to consider. You know, I believe Scripture is given for personal change. That you come to the, to the worship of God, not just to go through the motions, but to actually have an encounter with Almighty God, to, to hear the voice of Christ speaking to His church, and to be changed. So this is what you're waiting for. The first encouragement I think that Jesus has for you this morning is we are to be the church together. We are living stones, resurrected stones together. And if you've ever seen a pile of stones just thrown in, in a heap, it's ugly, it's good for nothing. But man, when, when the bricks are stacked by a mason, a master mason like my uncle, it's a sight to behold. We are to be the people of God together. We are to live together. This is one of the critiques, by the way, of Judge Barrett's people of praise in Ohio is that some of those people actually live together. It's weird. Now, many of them in this particular community have their own houses and 
All, most all of you have your own houses, but we are to live together. We're, we're to be in one another's lives on a regular basis. Mixed generational gatherings of young and old, of different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. So I'm eating your food and you're eating mine. I'm hearing about your traditions and you're hearing about mine, all under the banner of Christ. We're to spend our time with one another and to spend our money for one another. Some of you have bills that I can help with. I have a problem that you can solve. And in that sense, in the church, it's radically egalitarian. No one person is more needy or better than another. In fact, it's an inverted hierarchy where the neediest is the most precious and honored amongst us. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 12. But you actually have to be vulnerable in order to do that. So that means you need to let down your guard and, and express your frustration or anger or disappointment with this fellowship, perhaps, or with previous churches. Actually share a need. Actually ask for help. Pick up the phone. I need help. I also think being the church means these three things, and I'm only going to mention them briefly. People of praise should be three S's, a singing church. Now, we're getting better at singing, and we have an excellent worship team. Thank you, Adam, Jeremiah, and Josh, and all the players that, that bring such beautiful music every Sunday. We need to get better at singing. We need to sing louder. We need to work on singing in tune. Josh helps us put together a men's chorus. I'd love it if we do another one for Easter this year. It may be too soon. Well, we'll do it for Mother's Day. I want us to sing in our families. I want you to sing in the car, sing to the radio, put on some good Christian music, singing. A people of praise, we need to sing. And by the way, there are three or four psalms that are mentioned in this small passage of Scripture. Singing the psalms, some commentators think that the, this patchwork quilt of scripture references is actually an ancient hymn or excerpts from hymns. The church has always sung the Psalms. There's 150 preset songs in the Bible that are perfectly designed for us to become a people of praise. But it's not just Psalms according to the Bible, it's Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I take that to be three kinds of songs that we should concentrate on singing, a singing church. We are to be a sharing church. I mentioned that. And we are to be a sending church. A people of praise, verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the missionary impulse of the church. We're to send people. So I'm praying that God would raise up from our midst pastors, pastors' wives, missionaries to near and distant lands to teach the gospel and help others become a people of praise which we have become. But then it occurred to me, I received three emails this week, one from a missionary to Norway, 
one from a missionary to the Philippines, and one from a missionary to Muslims in the south of France. Even if we don't go there, a people of praise, ascending church, is going to pray for the gospel in these sorts of areas. And, and I don't know what to do with these emails. And these are actually people I have some contact with. These aren't like random drive-by missionary requests. These are people who know me, who know people that know me, and said, I was encouraged to reach out to you for various reasons. And so we have a missions committee composed of four or five people. It's not enough. It's not enough. And let's not segregate missions to four or five people who've met two or three times in the last year. A people of praise is ascending church. Our entire identity is such that we're praying that God would raise up and send out missionaries for his name. And then I thought of this. God has sent us people from distant lands. This is a partial list. Nigeria, India, Brazil, Costa Rica, Ecuador. In our church, we have direct connections to the nations. And the people of praise is going to value that. It's going to exploit that for Christ. What can we learn about that? And that's a partial list. Not very far from here, we're, there are areas of need where we can send help. We can bring, our, bring the praise of Christ as a people of praise. Atlantic City, my daughter is going on a missions trip to Atlantic City, Camden County, Salem County, lots of individual neighborhoods, Chestnut Ridge neighborhood in particular where we are located. So, let's get to work being a people of praise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, these weeks that we've been able to concentrate on the communion of the saints as Peter has directed our attention to our identity as the church. This is some serious ecclesiology. The doctrine of the church is on full display in, in the last several weeks in our Bibles. May it be on display in our lives. May the doctrine of the church not simply be a lesson in a dusty theological tome, but may the doctrine of the church be the way that we live. May it be our life doctrine. And in particular, this morning, may we be a people of praise. Resurrected stones, royal priests, and redeemed rebels who sing, share, and send praise to the ends of the earth. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.